Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. We'll be reading from verses 12 to 26. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came in with the twelve. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man, indeed, goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Thank you, Peter. Would you join me once more as we pray and ask God's help as we study his word together? Let's pray. Lord God, once more we come before you in prayer and this time as we come before you, we ask that you might help us to grapple with your word well. We pray that the truths that are here within your word might be clear to us. We pray that while we look at what in many ways is a grievous meal, a meal which is underscored by much tension, that we might see, see life and see the sacrifice that you are willing to make. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we sort of looked at in the children's talk, there are times where you could almost say that 
betrayal is expected. Now, we knew that that Barry and our soccer team was likely going to let us down. We were expecting it. However, there's many times when betrayal just seems to come completely out of the blue. When we look at the events here of Mark chapter 14, which follows on immediately from uh, verses 10 and 10 and 11, where Judas has betrayed Jesus to the chief priest for a bag of silver coins, we perhaps wonder what's going on here. Perhaps we have many question marks arise here about what Jesus did and didn't do in response to this. We see from verses 20 to 21, Jesus knew that the betrayal was coming. Why didn't he stop it? Why did he allow this to happen? Why did he let Judas betray him? This is God incarnate. This is God in human flesh who had the power to stop this. Why did this happen? As we look at this text before us today, we may be wondering how Jesus' death, which is clearly forecasted here, how could death be the ultimate victory? As we look at this text from verse 12 of Mark 14, we come upon an interesting question right at the beginning here posed to Jesus by his disciples. Now, you might remember that as Jesus and his disciples were about to head to Jerusalem, even as they were contemplating heading to Jerusalem, some of them had said to Jesus, look, if we're going to go to Jerusalem, we're going to die. And we remember the events of this week, which many refer to as the Passion Week, where this takes place. And there's been a lot of uncertainty, even just in the last few days. There's been an awful lot of upheaval taking place. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem with that triumphal entry where the crowds shouting out, the crowds acknowledging, this is the promised forever king from David's line, is basically what the crowds are saying. There's been this joy, this joyful declaration, this exuberant declaration of Christ as the forever king of David's line. And then things start to spiral a little bit. Jesus has gone into the temple courtyard and has had some, let's say interesting, but we know it's more than interesting, discussions with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the Herodians, with the scribes, four very powerful political groups, all very strongly opposed to him. He seems to be at loggerheads with the leadership in Israel. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough controversy for us, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus has declared that the temple and even Jerusalem had numbered days ahead of it. And as we study the events of Mark, Christ has even been anointed for burial earlier within this chapter. Things are spiralling. There is a lot of uncertainty going on where we pick up in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. 
this request we have at the beginning here of where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover, it is almost as if the disciples are clinging to something of normalcy. Things have not gone the way we expect them to go. They don't know that Jesus has gone and betrayed Jesus yet. They don't know that he's agreed to do that. But they've seen so much take place that they just seem to to want that normalcy. At least tell us we're going to have this Passover meal together. Can we share this meal together? The events have triggered different responses leading up to this in various disciples. For the disciples, they seem to be clinging to the Passover and you would hope clinging to the hope of salvation that God provided to his people through the events of that first Passover. For Judas, it's triggered a response of betrayal. We're jumping in almost very coldly to to Mark 14 this morning with not much lead into, or no lead into it at all in terms of our, our sermon series leading to this. But these things are at an incredibly tense moment in time. Tension cannot be denied. That tension is likely a massive part of prompting the disciples' seemingly united response to to ask Jesus what's happening for the Passover. Can we at least have this meal that we are so familiar with? In some ways, it would have been normal. Yes, we get the tension, but in many ways, it would have been a normal thing to prepare for the Passover meal. But one of the things that we never expect when it comes to Jesus is the normal. We saw that through the series we did on the parables where Jesus continually turned the tables on the people around him. And while Jesus doesn't turn the tables on his disciples, we see Mark explain, particularly through verses 13 through to 16, that there is far more going on with Jesus Christ than just an ordinary man who has upset the political structures of the day. We look at these verses, it's simple. We read through it with no complexity there. Jesus says, this is going to happen. You will meet this man carrying a pitcher of water, follow him, go into his house, say to the master of the house, the teacher would like a room, there'll be an upstairs room. It happens. It's no complexity to the narrative going on there. It's simple. But within this simplicity... We see more to Christ than a man. As we consider where this is going, the disciples who were fearful of going to Jerusalem because Jesus would die if they went there, they were right. But again, we're being shown more here by Mark about the coming death of Christ, which Jesus himself has just acknowledged uh, from verse 6 to 9 of chapter 14, that you know, there's more to him He is not going to be a human man dying. There is more here. So we look at the things happening there in verses 13 to 16. Look for a man carrying a jar of water. Culturally, probably fairly easy to spot. Uh, Normally, the carrying of water was done by the women of the day, so a man carrying a jar of water probably stood out a little bit. So that's a, a pretty easy sign. We'll look for him, we'll find him. Now, it's at that point there that the obvious nature of this, that those who deny Christ, uh, deny the deity of Christ rather, suggest that Jesus just has friends in the city 
who he has pre-arranged signals with. Now we know that as we look at various commentaries, particularly those online, you Google this and commentaries on this, you get all sorts of weird and wonderful things come up. And some suggest that the events we see are verses 13 to 16 are pre-arranged signals. Jesus had this all planned out. He knew this was going to happen. It just happened to happen this way. There is no foreknowledge. There is nothing special about Jesus. It's just a well-laid plan. I don't think we should see it that way. In fact, I 100% believe we should not see it that way because we look at the things that happen. There is a level of coordination, a level of anticipation that there is simply not the time to prepare for this. We are to read this and believe that Jesus knew these things were going to happen and take those hints that he is more than man. And A simple sequence of events so far as the reading is concerned, as we've said, Mark is saying to his audience that there's more here. And we see that very clearly in verse 16, which once more is so easy to read. So his disciples went out, came into the city, and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Happened exactly the way that he said it would happen. Passover meal was going ahead. As we know, this is the last Passover. When evening came, we pick up in verse 17, that Jesus went into the city with the twelve. Now, just a a quick note on the twelve. Two disciples were already there, but it still says the twelve went into the city with Jesus. Now, perhaps that is referring to they all came together as the 12. Uh, But we know from other places, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, when there were only 11 disciples at that point in time, 11 apostles at that point, the 12 is used there. It's indicative of those closest to Jesus, those 12 closer to Jesus there. Mark isn't erring here. There's not reason for us to look at this and find fault within the narrative It's just a shorthand way of saying Jesus and his particularly closest 12 disciples went and were there. Now, if we immerse ourselves just in verses 12 to 16 and onwards, we we perhaps forget the tensions underlying this passage. But if we have forgotten that tension, what comes next jolts us in a hugely sobering way. Now, imagine you're having an Australia Day dinner with your friends. You've been stressed out lately, getting the kids ready for school. It's a lot, so I've heard. We have all these things take place. The work year is starting to ramp up. The start of January was quiet, but things are getting busy. You just want to relax. I mean, for us, it's nowhere near as close to what it meant for Israel, but for us, the Australia Day get-togethers are probably about as close as we'd get in Australian culture to what the Passover was for the Jews. It was something they absolutely did. A time to, as Christians, when we take the opportunity on Australia Day to reflect on God's goodness and God's provision to us in this country. 
Likewise, for Israel, it was a chance for them to reflect on that wonderful liberation they had from their captivity in Egypt, where they were able to leave. And we remember the, the, the blood painted over the doorposts of their houses. Now imagine you're in the middle of this, me- of this meal where you're reflecting on goodness and those sorts of things. And somebody says, somebody here is about to betray me. The silence we've got now is probably about what you'd expect there, hey? That's not the joyful get-together you're hoping for. That wasn't part of normal discussion in the Passover. This is an incredibly jolting moment when Jesus says, somebody in this room is going to betray me. Verse 19, And they began to be sorrowful and to say to one another, Is it I? And another, Is it I? Sorrow strikes hard. These guys know that they're in a life and death situation and once more they have been reminded of that. This is serious and you can imagine the almost lead balloon that this is the conversation. It's necessary that this take place. You can imagine the conversation just stopping. Another example of this is when I was younger, we, or mum and dad, still live across the road from a creek and we were only allowed that's the key word, only allowed to go to the creek when mum and dad were home. I might have gone over there a few times when mum and dad weren't home. One of the neighbours, I can't trust neighbours, one of the neighbours had seen me and told dad on his way home from work that I'd been seen exiting the creek. A crime scene, doesn't it? We're halfway through dinner and dad comes out with this sentence, which stuck with me. I'm so glad you boys always tell you what, or I'm so glad you boys always do what we tell you to do when it comes to going to the creek. You wouldn't go there without permission, would you? This is maybe an hour and a half, two hours since I've come back. And the guilt just sunk deep. It's that, that sinking feeling you have in your gut. And my brothers were, it wasn't me, I, I didn't do it. I was a bit slow on the uptake. I was stunned by the guilt at that point in time and I eventually joined in with it wasn't me, but I'd been found out. I, I knew I'd been found out. And we respond to that in different ways, don't we? Sometimes we deny. Sometimes we own up. Judas denies. He seemingly continues with the disciples' reaction of, is it I? Now, the commentator Brooks points out this question of, is it I? is shaped and geared within the Greek for a negative response. Is it I? They're, They're hoping for and anticipating Jesus to say to them, no, it's not you. And rather than naming one of them as a betrayer, rather than naming Judas as a betrayer, Jesus says that it's one of the twelve. Now, likely there were 70 people in the room that night. Likely this room had 70 of Jesus' followers there with him that night. 
But so there's some, even though the person himself is not named who is going to betray Jesus, there is some specificity to what Jesus says here. It's one of the twelve. He doesn't just say it's definitely one of the people in this room here. He does narrow it down within that, but he still doesn't name the person, even though he knows. And beyond just being one of the twelve who is about to betray Jesus, the way that Jesus was about to be betrayed was in one of the worst ways in ancient Semitic times. To betray someone at or just after a meal was about as taboo a thing you could do. Eating this sort of meal with these people, this was what you shared with the people closest to you. The betrayal is close to home. It is culturally shocking for us to imagine Judas betraying Jesus like this and the severity of that betrayal is almost unfathomable in Jewish culture of the time. And verse 21, it would be better for that man, the betrayer, if he had not been born. It would have been better for Judas to have not been born. There is no excuse. There is no justification. This goes far and beyond the ramification of any betrayal that we have experienced in our life. Once more, we perhaps come back to this question of why... Did Jesus allow it? He let this continue. Verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's where Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane there. Why did he allow it to happen? We see the sorrow. We can understand the guilt. We can imagine the fear that is taking place in this room. Why does this happen? It happens because it was necessary. Remember they're sharing together in the Passover meal. It was necessary for the people of Israel, living in captivity in Egypt at that first Passover, to sacrifice a lamb and to paint the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so the angel of death would pass them by, who would pass over them. It was also necessary for Jesus to go through with this. Remember when he enters Jerusalem, if you remember back to around this time last year. The day where Jesus enters into Jerusalem is the day that the Passover lamb was chosen. He is presenting himself to the people as the Passover lamb. This is happening according to a plan. This is necessary. It is not taking Jesus by surprise. It was absolutely crucial that Jesus go through with this. As I said before, Jesus allowed this to happen. Now, when we say Jesus allowed this to happen, we can't think that Jesus was just passive in this. Just because he didn't work to stop it does not mean he is passive in this. Remember, he's presenting himself as a Passover lamb. 
what he says next in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is in tears in prayer, that he will take the cup, but he asks that the cup might be taken away from him. He goes willingly to the cross. In Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33, Peter tries to tell Jesus that he's not going to be killed. No, Jesus, you're not going to die. I'm not going to let it happen. Jesus' response to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. This is why Jesus came. This does not excuse the horror and the depravity and the absolute sinfulness of the betrayal that Judas commits. But it had to happen. When Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, perhaps you go, that's extreme. But wouldn't Satan have loved nothing more than for Jesus to not go to the cross? For Jesus to not fulfill the Father's plan? Mark 10, 45. Jesus says the Son of Man himself must give his life as a ransom for many. There's a sense in which we can say, yes, Jesus' life was taken from him, but Jesus gave his life for the many. Jesus was not making this stuff up on the fly. This was all done according to what God had revealed in the writings of the prophets. We don't know exactly what Jesus is referencing in 1421, but Passages like Isaiah 41 or Isaiah 53 seem very close to what is actually being referenced there in 14 verse 21. It is all done according to a plan. Jesus was heading into this Passover meal, fully aware of the plots against him, both by one of his closest and those who simply could not stand him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, they all stood against him. They all wanted him silenced. They wanted him silenced by his death. Jesus knew that he would be betrayed and turned against by those who simply hated God. Jesus knew all of this. He was aware of all of this. And he was also aware that his death was necessary. And this is not some foolish disregard for his life, some heroic spur took over him and he acted on impulse. This is not some lack of self-preservation. It is not some sort of Superman mentality where Jesus thought that he was immune to harm. He knew the immense harm that was in store for him. He knew what coming to Jerusalem meant. He knew that it meant going to the cross. Look at verses 22 to 25 with me. This is Mark's account of the institution of the beautiful remembrance meal at the Lord's Supper. This meal where all those who profess faith in Christ are joined together in fellowship with one another and fellowship with our Lord. Now you might notice uh, in Mark's uh, retelling of this institution, 
Uh, he doesn't present the charge from Jesus to, to do this in remembrance of me. That's not a flaw within Mark's narrative. Uh, the timing of Mark's uh, letter being written, his gospel being written, uh, indicates it was written at a time when the church was already practising this command and he's going through giving them the nuts and bolts, the other gospels, to explain this in details. Now, for the disciples in the upstairs room, they might have got a little bit concerned when halfway through this meal, which was done the same way, every year it was remembered, Jesus changed the usual pattern of events a little bit. He changed the pattern of events that he no longer looks back to the Passover in Egypt, but he appropriates the meal and applies it to himself. Now, we don't like cultural appropriation, Our society doesn't like that. Cancel culture particularly doesn't like that. Maybe the guys in the room were going, is this a little bit of this going on here? Cultural appropriation. Jesus is actually entirely right to appropriate these elements of the Passover and associate them to himself. Because he is pointing those who were there with him. He is pointing everyone reading this passage today. Everyone who has read this passage between now and today and everyone who will read this passage Jesus is pointing them to the ultimate Passover lamb. Verse 12, the Passover lamb was being prepared. Verses 22 to 25, Jesus is saying that his body would be torn and his blood poured out as a sacrifice. There is an earthly finality to this meal for Christ. He will never drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when he drinks it again anew in the kingdom of God. Now, once more, we look at this and we see hope. Put yourself in the shoes of the guys there with Jesus, though, and we still feel that sadness. The pressure, the stresses that were seemingly everywhere around the lead up to this meal together. The imminent betrayal of Christ. All of those mix and flurry of negative emotions, Jesus gives hope. Jesus is willing to give up his life. Some suggest Jesus is just gassed by this point. He's run out of puff. He just can't keep going, but he still has support. He has at least 70 people in the room with him. Many were still listening to him. He's not giving up. What's going on here is the the true hope of Christ's imminent death. He was going to accomplish and give humanity the thing that we have been crying out for ever since the fall. Ever since we plunged ourselves into sin, ever since we lost paradise, we have been crying out for a return to the ultimate promised land and a a way to usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus' body would be broken. Jesus' blood would be poured out for many. For many. Remember Mark 10.45. The Passover lamb in Egypt was so important. Such a crucial event in history. Not just Israel's history, but all history. 
But even that incredibly significant event pales in contrast to what's about to happen. Jesus could have said, no, it's too hard. Father, you're asking too much. But in verse 26, he goes to the place that he knows he's going to be arrested. He faces this head on. When I hear about the hope found in Jesus, that is a hope that I know I have to cling to. Because the price that Jesus was going to pay was a blood sacrifice for sin. It was a sin offering. I have committed sins against the holy God. Sin results in God's wrath. I have a need to be sheltered and protected from the wrath of God if I have any hope of eternal life. The blood of the Passover lamb turned away the angel of death in Egypt. The blood of Jesus is even more amazing because it turns away the wrath of God. Again, what Judas did was especially terrible. He betrayed the second person of the Trinity. He betrayed him apparently because he just got sick of a financial dispute that took place in Mark 14 verses 3 to 9. He certainly wasn't trusting God. And as a result, he was left with absolutely nothing to cover over and to deal with his sins. If we deny God, if we turn away from God, and in the book of Hebrews it says that all those who have heard the gospel and turn away are effectively trampling it underfoot. All of us here today have heard the gospel when we read Mark. If we deny God, if we reject God, if we trample underfoot the sacrifice that Christ made for us, then we too are left with nothing to protect us from, our, from the wrath of God. We are left with our sins exposed to a holy God who cannot stand the sight of sin. On the other hand, if we are trusting him, if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who came into this fallen, broken, sinful world to teach us about God, to pay the price for our sin while never sinning himself. If we believe that he rose victorious from the grave on the third day, then we have certain hope of life with him. You see, we look at these passages and perhaps we do keep coming back to those why questions. Why? Why did this happen? This happened because Jesus had to die for our sins. If Jesus did not die for our sins, we have no hope of of relief from sin, which, when we're honest with ourselves, has come into every one of our lives in horrific ways. 
if we are trusting in him, if we've been called to find protection under the shadow of his wings, then there is freedom from that sin. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper very shortly. As we come to the Lord's Supper, let's remind ourselves of the enormity of the price that Jesus paid for us. Let's participate in that meal, remembering the solemnity of that price. Let's also remember the joy that it is to be united with the one who saved us from sin, whose blood turns away the wrath of God, who died for you and me and all who believe. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for what we read here in Mark 14. These events are ones that, as we read of the sorrow of those gathered in the upper room, likewise fill us with sorrow. That Jesus, the perfect, perfect man, God incarnate, would die for our sins. It grieves us that our sin has led to this. Yet it reminds us of our incredible need to be thankful for this. We have received life when we did not deserve it. Christ paid the price for people who could not pay the price for themselves. May we remember this. May we not forget the price that was paid and may we rejoice in the freedom from sin. May we rejoice that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. May we find comfort in him and may we continually return to the foot of the cross where we find our salvation. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.